we are to the, the spot in the story that for some of us we may see this as the most difficult time. I, I joked in class this morning that we stayed on chapter 26 an extra week. Uh, I thought I was going to get to preach on resurrection and Benjamin said, why don't we stay on 26 one more week? And so I got to preach on the crucifixion of Jesus. I'll get him back for that. Um, it is a difficult time. It is a difficult study to, to think about. Uh, we don't like to talk about death and suffering. Uh, if, if you do, that's a problem. That's an issue. You should see someone about that. But we don't like to talk about these things. But the Gospels need to show you the suffering and death of Jesus. Because for so many people, they thought as Jesus hung there on a cross with a sign above His head saying, King of the Jews, in jest. They didn't really realize what that really meant. They thought that was the end of Jesus. They thought that was the end of His followers, that there was no more hope. I hope that there's never been a time in your life where you have felt like you have no hope. That there's not a time where you don't feel like there will be someone for you to lift you up, to encourage you. I hope that there's never a time that you feel like you're without hope. But this time reminds me, it makes me reflect on my own mortality I hope it directs our minds toward everything Jesus did for us. Because not everyone has that hope. They have not accepted the hope that is Jesus Christ. Many of you don't know, but during the week, I work part-time as a chaplain and a bereavement coordinator for a hospice company in Texarkana. Uh, I don't know if anybody gets excited about the title bereavement coordinator, but that's what I am. I call families of loved ones right after they have passed. So when I go into work, the first thing I do is I check uh, the computer, my tablet, to see who has died, to see which family I have to call. This very week, I had a name of a person who had passed. And I looked him up on the computer, and I was like, well, I've got to call this family. It's never easy, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's something we never get used to. A lot of times we just feel like we need to say something, and we say something stupid. You don't know what to say. But as I pulled this person's name up in the computer to look at who I needed to call, the only name on there was the name of a child. And before their name, it said, do not call. They had no one. I made sure to ask uh, the people that, that knew of that, uh, that individual just to clarify. They said, there is no one. My job is to offer uh, bereavement services, to offer hope, to offer encouragement uh, for those who are left. What a stark reminder uh, a scary reminder of, of people that have made choices to where they are so separated from anyone that they have no hope, they have no, no people behind them. 
let's back up just a minute in Jesus' story because we, we, know, uh, we know that Jesus' story does not end there. The Gospels start out with, with the birth of Jesus. Now, we know some about the birth, uh, just a little bit of, of Him uh, around the birth narrative. We, we know almost nothing as he, as he grows up as a young man. He stands in the temple. We know about 12, and so we have that account. But the only thing we know from there until about the age of 30 is that he grew up. We don't have any stories. We actually have uh, some books that are not biblical books of people trying to fill in what Jesus did between those years because we don't have anything. And so as we look back at the Gospel story, uh, the, the authors want you to see Jesus as someone you can relate to, as a person. And so we get to this point in the story where Jesus' ministry is coming to a conclusion. Jesus has been teaching. He has been preaching. He has been healing. He has been casting out demons. He has fed thousands. Yet He finds Himself at odds with a lot of people. I don't know about you, but as I sit, especially in church weekly, I find it is a time to kind of self-evaluate. Do you do that? Like, I, I, okay, <laughs> I know this week was bad. i gotta got to be a better week. I've heard it prayed here, I've, and I've prayed it before. I will get up here and pray, Lord, help me to be better this week than I was the last. You ever prayed that prayer? I prayed that one time in Texarkana, and I, I didn't think anything about it. And after church, somebody came up to me like, how bad were you this week? Like, i got to know, why did you pray that? But I find it as a moment of self-reflection, and I feel like, maybe naively, that, that if I am better, if I grow closer to Jesus, my life will become easier. But as we read the Gospels, that is never the case, is it? It is never the case. Jesus never promises that. Now, He promises that in the bigger sense. But Jesus never promises that your life is going to be easier and we need uh, look no further than His life. As we pick up here in the story, uh, in class we, we have gone up to uh, the Passover. Jesus has His disciples around Him. As He tells them He's about to be, be betrayed, it seems very clear to us what's going to happen, but they still don't get it. Jesus goes out from that, that Passover feast and He goes, as uh, Ed mentioned, into the garden and prays three times, right, Miss Marilyn? He prays three times. Why three times? We don't know. But He prays earnestly that let this cup pass from Me. A seeming, uh, as we read it, a, maybe that human side of Jesus coming out. Can, can this pass from Me? God, is there any other way but then he prays, as I think a lot of times we are scared to pray, not my will, but yours. Uh, that's, the, that's the gulp I have to have before I say that in my prayer. Am I really ready to embrace that prayer? But Jesus plainly tells His disciples, I am going to be betrayed by one of you. The disciples look around and, and they kind of ask the question, who, who would it be? Are they thinking, is it, would it be me, Jesus? Surely not me. 
Or do they have an idea of who it would be? Jesus seems to plainly tell them it is going to be the person who I dip this bread and give it to him. And so he does that with Judas. And what's funny is he does that to Judas and Scripture tells us that then Satan enters into Judas' heart and Judas leaves. And the disciples are still confused about this. They think because Judas had the money that he just left to go get something. Can you imagine Jesus sitting there saying, I, ju I just told you. I kind of laugh at the disciples some, but then I also look at my own life and like, ah, you might ought to slow up a little bit because he's been pretty clear with me too. But Jesus' betrayal is, is coming. We know it's coming. He's told them the Son of Man has to suffer. Now, they haven't picked up on that completely. They don't know. You know, Peter stands in his way and says, Lord, not going to happen. Jesus says, get out of my way, Satan. You have on the ideas of man, not of God. So he knows he's going to be betrayed. He has said he is going to suffer. The only question is, is when. John says over and over, it, it wasn't Jesus' time yet. It is not my time now. You remember, there's a couple of times where Jesus is surrounded. looks like He will be killed. And Jesus just seems to walk right through them. Kind of weird. We had fun with this in the teen class when they're about to throw Him off the cliff. It's like, what did that look like? You try to imagine what a man just kind of walking back through the crowd as they're trying to throw Him away. What, what does that look like? The Jews call that mountain the leaping mountain because in their tradition, he, he didn't walk through, he jumped off. Like, okay, see you. But Jesus, as much as we like to give ourselves credit as, as religious people, religious people are the people who go after Jesus. You never see the Romans coming up and making a fuss who are in control, by the way. It's always the religious leaders who have a problem with what Jesus is doing. And so Judas betrays Jesus and he is handed over uh, to these priests, to these religious people, and put on trial. Now, the Gospel contrasts this. You remember Jesus is preaching openly. He is in public. You can see Him. You could, and He tells them, why do you come at night? Because the religious leaders don't approach Jesus during the daylight when He was out in public. They come at night. And you have this darkness and light contrast. So He is betrayed and He is approached under the cover of darkness. Have you ever been betrayed by someone? If you have, you not going to forget it for the rest of this sermon. You're probably done. Because doesn't that just eat you alive? Like I can take it from someone who, uh, who doesn't know me, who doesn't, uh, you know, shouldn't know me. But when someone who has been close to me, who I love, betrays me, talks about me in a bad way that isn't true, that eats me alive. And the religious leaders do exactly that. The religious leaders bring Jesus under the cover of darkness into this trial which is completely unfair. Now we as uh, Americans, we, we pride ourselves on justice, right? 
Well, they bring in a bunch of false witnesses to say all kinds of things about Jesus, which is, which is really weird in the text because you notice they keep bringing in false, all of these false witnesses. And what does it say? They still couldn't find anything. Jesus lived a life in such a way that all of these false witnesses, nothing stuck. Nothing stuck at all on Jesus. But what these people wanted to know and what they tried to get Him on is the most important question for us today. They said, are you the Messiah? Now that's a personal question to each one of you. Is Jesus the Messiah? Because if you say He is, you're not done. There's a lot left for you to do. But these religious people who have been looking for a king, who have been looking for someone from the line of David to come to be the Savior of Israel, sit feet away from the king they have looked for. Yet they could not recognize him. They wanted earnestly, it seemed anyway, to have a Savior come to them. And as He sat in their midst, they didn't recognize Him. And that's why I, I titled this today, The Invisible King. Now, we spent the entire spring, I don't know if you want to call it a semester or whatever, talking about we went through the entire Old Testament. It is very important to understand your Old Testament for reasons like I'm going to show you this morning. Do you remember in the Old Testament when judges ruled? Anybody been to Branson and seen Samson? Julie, you're the only one I ran into. Judges ruled, but there came an end, there was a point in time where people were no longer satisfied with the judges that they had over them. And they said, and this is coming from Samuel, appoint us a king, appoint a king over us so that we can be like the nation. God had said you need these judges. The people said we need to be like everybody else. We need a king over us. That was in Samuel. Long before that in the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to read this. Is Corbin up there? Yeah, there you are. You're blending into the wall, buddy. Got the camera. Listen to these words. This is before the Samuel event ever happened. When you enter the land of the Lord your God, enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Good job, God. You saw that one coming. He said, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God 
and follow carefully all the words of His law and these decrees and not consider Himself better than His fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then He and His descendants will reign a long time over His kingdom in Israel. A profile of a king. Now one thing as we, as we read through the New Testament, one thing we see through Jesus' teaching is the difference in the way in which the religious leaders had been teaching what the law says and what these Scriptures say and the reality of these Scriptures. Though they claimed to be experts in the law, they didn't really know it. When you read through Deuteronomy 17 and you read all the ways, all the parameters God gives these people for a king over them, Jesus fits everyone. This is to be a man who is not looking for power. He is not bringing a military. He is not about collecting wealth. And here you have Jesus showing up as a humble servant. How much wealth did he have? How much of a military? Jesus fits this profile perfectly, yet they want to kill him. Some people believe. In John 7, I don't, do I have this? John 7 31. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Jesus did so many things that, that people started asking the question, can a man come that does more things than this guy? Like there's a little bit of doubt in some people's minds, but not the religious leaders. And even the disciples had their doubts. We, As I said earlier, I, I kind of laugh, but then I have to look at myself and say, he's pretty clear with me. They may not have known who Jesus was the entire time, but it seems to me the difference in the disciples and the religious leaders are that the disciples were available to be taught. The religious leaders felt like they'd learned it all. Isn't it fun talking to someone who, who believes they already know it all? I think I've shared this with you before, but my sister's an orthopedic surgeon and she's in Texas so she can't defend herself. But we argued one time about something, and I, you know, we had the, the big encyclopedia set at home, and we argued about something. Finally, I went over to the encyclopedias and showed my sister that she was wrong. And she said, That's a misprint. <laughs> Sometimes there's no winning. What else could Jesus have shown these religious leaders to make them understand who he was? They mocked Him. They laughed at Him. They told Him to come down off the cross. Do you think coming down off the cross would have changed any of their minds? He rose from the grave and they're still waiting on their Messiah. Nothing would have changed their mind. He healed the sick. He gave the blind sight. He made the lame walk. He says in Luke 4, as he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, he said, I have come to do all of these things. And when he sits down, he says, today, this has been fulfilled. 
and they tried to throw him off a cliff. There is nothing Jesus could have done more to tell these people, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. Yet they rejected Him. The story of Jesus here in chapter 26 of the story ends as He is on that cross. Seemingly, basically alone. Maybe a handful of people around. It was not unexpected. Jesus had told His disciples, you're going to flee. You're going to run away. And of course, they, they said, no, we're not. Peter said, I will not deny you. And as I read to Evan last night, three times before the rooster crowed, Peter denied him. You never read about Peter standing around the cross. All his disciples have left. Jesus said that's what would happen. But I want you to notice as Jesus leaves the garden, as we've, as we've already mentioned this morning, Jesus prays three times that this cup would pass from Him. Not my will, but yours. And when He leaves that garden, He is set. He understands in His mind that God's will is that this is going to happen. This is the way in which this is going to happen. And He embraces it. Being on the cross all alone, seemingly defeated by many people, Jesus still finds the courage, finds the strength to have the right focus on God. Can you imagine the power it took to look at the very people who put you on that cross and say to God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's tough. That is a tough thing to do. But God was there for Jesus, giving Him strength. I don't know where you're at in your life. I know sometimes in life it feels like you're at the end of your rope, that you are snowed under, that the waves are crashing in around you, that you're at the bottom of a pit and the only way up is a slick trail that you've tried to get up before. And this is going to be tough. The bad thing is is that people will take joy in you being at the bottom of that pit. Some people live for seeing how badly you have it. Just like Jesus, they will laugh at you. They will mock you. And they will take pride in pointing out your downfall. The way you can be different is to recognize that you are not alone, just like Jesus did. That God is with you, that Jesus is King. Unlike these religious leaders who couldn't see the man sitting in front of them, who couldn't recognize, though they said they were experts in the law, couldn't recognize that the law told them this is what a king will look like. You may not feel like you will ever get out of that hole. And it, frankly, it's hard to tell someone when they're down, things are going to get better because you can't see it. You ever felt so overwhelmed with something you don't know which way is up? Our bodies have that reaction. As we have urges or needs that come about, 
our body prioritizes those things. We, we kind of laugh about being hangry. Everybody been there? How much do you focus on, I'm not, I'm going to pretend I didn't see tapping on the wife. But as you get hungry, that's like the only thing you can think about, right? Like other things become less important because I'm so hungry or whatever that need is. You want to know how to put away that hunger thought? Hold your breath. See how long you can hold it. There'll be a moment in time where you're not thinking about how hungry you are. I need to breathe again. And so we reprioritize those things. And sometimes we, we need to understand where that thing is. We need to reprioritize. When I feel like I'm overwhelmed, I need to understand where I stand with God. That I am His. That He is mine. When people laugh at you, you love them. When people try to rip you, you pray to God that they will repent because they don't know what they're doing. When people throw shade, you don't know what that means, ask a millennial. You show that you're saved. You focus on God. You focus on Him. Because even when you feel like you're, the end is near, I can't get out of this, you have a King. You recognize Him as King. And those of you who are Christians, that is what you're professing. You're professing that I have a King who is over my life and who is in control. That doesn't mean that God causes all these terrible things to happen in your life. I hate it when people say that. God's in control and everything that happens happens for a reason. No, sometimes that reason is people are stupid, people are negligent, people are fallen. But God can get you out of that hole and praise God for it. Because sometimes in my life it feels like I get out of that hole just to slide back down here. What I don't want you walking away from today is, is thinking that this is some sort of pick yourself up out of the dirt and work harder at it. Your job is to pick yourself back up, but to understand who gives you the power to do so. And that's Jesus Christ. He came, all this was so that you would know that He is King that He is worthy to be followed. And if nothing else will get you out of that hole, that should. Because He came not to live a life of luxury, not to live an easy life, but to suffer and die on the cross for you and for me. And all things would be fulfilled through that. Because of Him, we have salvation. And that's the hope. That's the hope we have. And so, it is so just to bring back my time as a hospice chaplain and bereavement coordinator, it is so different. Each call is different, but when I talk to someone, I nearly cried when this guy had no family this week. But it is so different to talk to someone, talk to a family member, 
who their loved one who is now gone on, but they lived a life where there is hope because they put, they put their trust in Jesus Christ. I have people that almost sound happy. Like, I'm not sure they need bereavement things. Some people will actually tell me, send those to people who need them. We've got so much support here, so much love from friends and church. I pray that for each of us, that we do. But even when you feel like you don't, put your trust in Him. I don't know where you're at this morning, but we're always available to pray with you, pray for you. Uh, we'd love to do that, any of the shepherds, uh, Benjamin or I. But put your trust in Jesus. He might have lived a life that made him invisible to the religious leaders around him, not to understand who he was. But be open to seeing that this morning. Make a profession that Jesus Christ will be my Lord and Savior. And that's got to mean something. That's got to mean something in the way that I live, the way I approach people, the way I do everything. And the way that I have hope and give hope. If you have anything this morning, would you come as we stand and sing?